Welcome to the Congress of Neurological Surgeons Journal Club podcast. You listen to this recording today and we will be discussing the following paper. PUFF's trial, long-term clinical and angiographic outcomes following pipeline embolization device treatment of complex intracranial carotid artery aneurysms. Five-year results of the pipeline for uncoilable or failed aneurysm trials. Um, we have the, author, the primary author of this paper with us today and three discussants, and I will ask them to please introduce themselves. Yeah, my name is uh, Tibor Esky. I'm the principal, in, I was the principal investigator of the PUFF trial. At the time, I was at um, New York University Medical Center. Currently, I am director of um, neurointerventional services at uh, Rochester Regional uh, Medical Center here in Rochester, New York. I'm Ajit Thomas. I'm the co-director of the Brain Aneurysm Institute at Bethesville Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, which is affiliated to Harvard Medical School. And I'm Adrienne Morath. I'm one of the neurosurgery residents, currently a sixth year at Stanford University. And I am Jonathan Pace. I'm a fifth-year neurosurgery resident at University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center. Great. Thank you very much for everybody's introduction. And uh, I'm Dr. Stupler from the BI in Boston as well. Uh, I would ask Dr. Baske to go ahead and give us a little bit summary of the paper, uh, the study design, and what he found. We're going to be talking about the PUFFS trial, which is the pipeline embolization device for uncoilable or failed aneurysms trial, uh, the five-year results. Um, the trial was a multicenter single-arm prospective interventional cohort uh, conducted at 10 centers uh, enrolling 108 patients with 110 aneurysms, and the effectiveness arm of the study contained 104 patients harboring 106 aneurysms. The study did not allow coiling of the aneurysms. The aneurysms uh, size-wise were 78.7% uh, .7 were large, that is bigger than 10 millimeters, 20.4% were giant, and there was one single aneurysm that was below the 10 millimeter size that was, ex that was excluded from the effectiveness arm. The mean aneurysm size was 18.2 millimeters, and the mean neck size was 8.8 .8 millimeters. The study targets were determined based on historical data, and the effectiveness was preset at 50% or higher complete aneurysm occlusion rate, with the safety being set at less than 20% complication rate. The inclusion criteria were age 21 to 75 years, and patients had to have had to have a single target aneurysm intracranial on the internal carotid artery, petrous through the superior hypophyseal segments, so proximal to posterior communicating. And again, the aneurysms had to be more than 10 millimeters in size, and the neck had to be more uh, or equal to four millimeters. Exclusion included uh, uh, recent subarachnoid or recent major surgery. Uh, history of bleeding disorder or other issues that would prevent patients 
to be placed on dual antiplatelets, a pre-existing stent in the place at the target aneurysm, and major stenosis of the ipsilateral carotid artery, defined as 50% or more. And previous um, coil treatment or, or clipping or other uh, treatment not involving stenting was allowed. So recurrent aneurysms were allowed. And the primary effectiveness endpoint was defined as uh, a 180-day angiographic study that shows a complete occlusion of the target aneurysm using a pipeline device alone without the use of complementary other embolic agents like coils, and no major stenosis of the parent artery, meaning no stenosis over 50%, and an independent core laboratory was used to adjudicate the, these outcomes. The primary safety endpoint was defined, again, at 180 days, as the incidence of major ipsilateral stroke or neurologic death, defined as an increase of four or more points on the NIA stroke scale score at 180 days. The endpoints were independently adjudicated. The effectiveness was uh, adjudicated by a core radiology lab uh, by three physicians, and the safety, again, three physicians um, uh, composing a clinical events committee who reviewed all significant adverse events. These physicians were not investigators in the study, and they were not financially involved in the, in the trial or in the company in any way. The study sites uh, were seven study sites were in the United States, in Buffalo, Stony Brook, New York City at NYU, uh, Mayo Clinic in uh, Minnesota, two locations in Chicago, uh, St. Louis and uh, Phoenix, Arizona, Barrow Institute. And the two sites outside the United States were Budapest in Hungary and Ankara in Turkey. Um, and the U.S. enrolled 70% uh, of the patients and 30% were enrolled outside of the United States. Um, the demographics were matched. Uh, um, uh, I mean, the demographics uh, showed uh, female gender in, in about 90% of the patients. Um, there were eight patients uh, with remote subarachnoid hemorrhage, and eight of the aneurysms had been previously treated. Six of them were treated by coil embolization, and uh, one was clipped, and there was another attempted treatment. Again, the aneurysms were very large um, and wide neck, as I mentioned before. In terms of location, um, about half of the aneurysms were extradural, and the other half were intradural, uh, up to the posterior communicating artery, as discussed before. How many, uh, in terms of the procedures, the average length of the uh, procedure was 124 minutes, and we used, uh, on average, well, a mean of three uh, pipeline devices per subject. Um, in the trial. At 180 days, the primary effectiveness analysis showed uh, that 74% of the aneurysms were completely occluded without um, a, a, a um, adverse event or, or instant stenosis, uh, which, were, which met the, the study uh, criteria for success in a highly, significantly, a highly statistically significant uh, manner. 
And the safety analysis at 180 days again um, showed there were six um, significant um, events uh, meeting the primary safety endpoints uh, for 5.6% rate, which was again meeting the <coughs> success criteria for the trial in a highly statistically significant fashion. The primary safety endpoint events included two parent artery thromboses with stroke, one stenosis with stroke, one hemorrhag uh, two hemorrhagic events, not subarachnoid hemorrhages, and uh, one event that was possibly cardiac, but a neurologic event could not be ruled out. Uh, so that was the six, that were the six events uh, at 180 days. Now the five-year follow-up, uh, in the five-year follow-up we had um, 81 of the 103 surviving patients complete clinical follow-up. 75 of the 100 patients in the effectiveness arm completed imaging follow-up, and 61 patients with 63 aneurysms completed angiographic follow-up. So these angiographic follow-up data at five years, this number of 61% uh, angiographic follow-up uh, five years is, is really very, very high um, if you compare to you know, to the the, the usual follow-up um, information that we have on, on aneurysm treatments. Um, the angiographic aneurysm occlusions um, um, rates over time showed um, a, an increase. So at 180 days, as I mentioned, close to 74% were occluded. At one year, the number was 87%. At three years, 93%, and five years, it was 95.2%. With only three um, aneurysms uh, noted to have a residual neck or a residual aneurysm filling. And um, that, again, is a very significant, um, uh, really a significant um, advance to what we were able to do with these aneurysms prior to the prior to flow diversion. Um, if you look at the aneurysm remnants over the five-year period, uh, so we had 15 remnants left, uh, I mean found at six months. Of those 15, six were retreated and nine had no retreatment. And in all, 11 of these 15 had uh, eventually uh, completed aneurysm occlusion. So 73% of these uh, aneurysm remnants um, eventually ended up completely occluding with or without treatment uh, with only three remaining open and there was one patient that was lost to follow up. In terms of delayed safety events after six months, after the primary um, uh, determination or, or, or assessment of the trial, we had no ipsilateral strokes, intracranial hemorrhages, or neurologic deaths after the six-month follow-up period. Uh, there was one non-neurologic death at two years related to cancer, and there were three device-related uh, significant adverse um, uh, events, all between six months and three years. And um, two of these were related to um, uh, transient monocular blindness on the side of the of the stent uh, that was, uh, again, transient, 
and there was one silent parent vessel occlusion. Speaking of parent vessel occlusions, uh, we observed a total of six carotid occlusions in the study. Three of these happened within the first six months. Two happened with, between six months and one year, and there was one delayed between one year and, and three years. Of these, only one that um, resulted in, in a stroke. The others were non-neurologically um, symptomatic. So in summary, we found that the pipeline device treatment of large and giant wide neck proximal anterior circulation aneurysms is effective and safe. The five-year angiographic aneurysm occlusion rate was found to be 95%. The overall angiographic occlusion rate throughout the trial is in the 90% range. We found no aneurysm recanalizations. There was one aneurysm rupture uh, post-treatment, which was a cavernous aneurysm resulting in a cavernous fistula. Aneurysmal subarachnoid rate was 0%, and the major ipsilateral stroke and neurologic death rate was 5.6%. Um, the high-grade <clears throat> incident stenosis rate was 2.8%. This excludes the occlusion. Thank you very much. Very good. Thank you so much for the summary. Dr. Thomas, can I ask you uh, to lead away with the first question, please? I just um, my disclosure, I'm on the data safety monitoring board of uh, the SENT trial, which is a similar trial, uh -huh. Stryker. Um, I just want to first congratulate Tibor for doing this trial with your collaborators. Uh, this has been such an important trial for the endovascular community and has completely changed the paradigm of treatment. The results are indeed uh, totally amazing, and uh, uh, I, I, it is very gratifying to be an endovascular uh, neurosurgeon these days uh, with such an innovative device. I wanted to start by asking, of the 20 patients who didn't have a five-year follow-up, how many of them did have an angiographic occlusion at the last follow-up? Um. Okay, I don't think I have this um, specific uh, answer. Um, Approximately 90%, would you say? I, 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 can't, I can't venture a guess. I would have to go and think okay, of my no table problem. and figure so, that out. So I, I can't say, unfortunately. No problem. So what is the optimal follow-up for after placement of a PED based on your data? What should be the timing of the angiogram? I, I noticed that you did one at... Um, six months, one year, three year, five years. So if you had to take a, uh, a guess, yeah. what would be an approximate uh, time point for doing the initial yeah. angiogram? So, so again, I, I don't, first of all, thank you for your comments about the trial and obviously credit goes to Dr. Nelson and many, many other people, you know, uh, but, but uh, it's been very rewarding in working on this environment and with these people. But anyways, um, in terms of your question, how many, yeah, I, I couldn't answer that question, and the follow-up. So follow-up, I don't have the answers. All I can tell you is what I've been doing and we've been doing. And, you know, essentially, I don't particularly see utility uh, of a hyper-early uh, angiographic follow-up, but some people do, you know, as early as a, as a few days or, or a couple of weeks later. and. Is the practice in Europe is completely different in terms of anti-platelet management as well. 
what I can say is that what worked for me and what I think is pretty reasonable is based on the, the occlusion numbers is to do a six-month um, follow-up angiogram. And, and then in, if the aneurysm is completely closed, then, you know, um, I think we should, should be able to follow the patients with non-invasive imaging. The only issue is that if you do a CPA uh, with a metallic artifact, you know, you're not going to have, you know, many times the, the, the very good signal inside. And so the question of, of um, instant stenosis sometimes can come up. And, and so can they force you to do an angiogram? And the same thing is true with MRA. If you do a good contrasted MRA, uh, many times you can you can get away with it, but sometimes you can't, and so that kind of puts a, puts a um, uh, a uh, a damper on this on this idea of of just following the patient non um, non invasively a longer term. But hypothetically, um, hypothetically that sh should we should be able to do that if we can get appropriate um, imaging to that that can show that the aneurysm is closed and also can clarify the question of what's going on with the stent, with the vessel inside the stent. So, so what you're saying is yeah. once the aneurysm is occluded on the angiogram, then you will be able to follow up with an MRI because even if, it, uh, in your series, even if it were to occlude, it seems to be relatively asymptomatic. So it's not that you did an angiogram and uh, then reopened the vessel. Correct. Uh, yeah, so let, let me put it this way. I think, you know, before we get to the point where we can reliably do non-invasive studies uh, on these patients, because my experience is that if I try to do that, more than half the cases I will be forced to do an angiogram anyways, because, because <laughs> it's either going to be read by somebody as 60% as instant stenosis or, or something else. And so I, I still do the one-year angiogram on almost all of my patients, and then try to do the three and five-year follow-ups without, without um, you know, an angiogram because I know that the, the likelihood of an instant stenosis in a very delayed fashion is very, very low. Um, um, but um, you know, a, a lot of it has to with the individual comfort and, and what kind of radiologists uh, you have and how reliable your interpretations on, of these studies are and what quality of MRAs you get and all those kinds of things. Uh, would you say that the occlusion and stenosis could be related to inadequate antiplatelet therapy? Because one of the things I noticed compared to PUFs is that we do look at um, platelet function testing more aggressively these days and we try mm -hmm. to correct it, you know, sometimes maybe adding a different drug or maybe giving higher dose doses of clopidogrel? So that's a, of course, that's a, that's a great question, and uh, I, I don't have the answer to that. You know, um, uh, if, I, if I think back of our own initial experience, for the first two years we didn't do any platelet testing, uh, and then after that we started doing the platelet testing, you know, we didn't formally look into the incidents of, of uh, complications, but, you know, just off the top of my head, my, my sense is that we really didn't, uh, didn't make a big um, change in the, in the way patients do. But having 
said that, though, I have to say that after the, we discovered that unexpected year, parent uh, uh, vessel occlusion, who was a young lady from Tennessee, uh, remember, and she had a fusiform per segment aneurysm, which required, as I believe, she had nine stents there, nine devices. Uh, uh, after that, we started the practice of not stopping the planics after six months on these, specifically the fusiform aneurysms, and we keep the, we keep them on long term. And I we don't have a solid endpoint where where you take them off, but uh, but you're right. You're right. Probably that that has to do with that. It probably has to do with with the antiplatelet um, action not being su uh, sufficiently, you know, uh, strong. I just have one last question. Uh, when you do, when you find, say, at uh, three months, I mean, three years, or at um, eighteen months, the aneurysm is still filling. Do you recommend placing a second PED because? In our experience, we have tried that, and we find that despite placing a second PED, the aneurysm does not occlude, which leads me to wonder whether there are patient-specific factors which prevent endothelialization and may not yes. be all device-specific. That is a great question, again, and I like that observation very much because, you know, that's one thing that we that we tend to leave out of the equation, uh, meaning, meaning there are patient-specific factors, you know, we measure we measure antiplatelet action, but we don't fully understand the nuances of of coagulation and how that is affected and and, and whatnot, and radiological issues uh, in the individual patient. So I think that's that is a strong possibility that in, uh, patients. Um, and it, it may not be just coagulation. It may be, you know, other factors which influence endothelialization. For example, age. Correct. We find that older patients, you know, their uh, their endothelial progenitors may not be as uh, vibrant or as as um, good as the younger patients. So, uh, for example, we find that older patients uh, tend to have uh, their aneurysms patent in a higher percentage uh, with the mm -hmm. flow diverters. Yeah, that, 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 again, that's very interesting, but I know that you, you work in that, uh, in that, in that arena uh, uh, research-wise. Yeah, I, I can't answer that, but probably, you know, probably that, that, that's a good, good likelihood that, that may also have something to do with it. But I, unfortunately, I can't, I can't tell you the answer. Thank you very much, Dr. Besky. I'll, uh, I'll let the others go ahead with their questions. Thank you very much, Dr. Thomas. Hi, Dr. Besky. This is uh, Dr. Morris. I first just wanted to echo Dr. Thomas's appreciation for you bringing this real paradigm shift in the way that we can treat these really difficult aneurysms. I wanted to get a better sense of kind of what the reception was from the neurointerventional community as you were designing the trial and what, if any, resistance you got to any elements of the trial design and had that evolved as the trial results started to come out. So, thank you. So, so I would say there wasn't really no, no much of resistance in the in the design. I mean, I mean in in negotiating the the design of the the trials with the FDA, which actually was done by by Dr. Nelson and and um, 
uh, Aaron Beret from from Dan Chestnut, uh, who uh, you know in, um, developed the uh, um, device. Essentially, you know the the, um, the pushback from the FDA, as I understand, was that they really wanted a randomized trial, and you know uh, so two trials were in parallel. Um, Proposed one was the Pox and the other one was called the Coco. That's less well known, but the Coco was the one that that was supposed to compare pipeline alone treatment with coil alone treatment of coilable aneurysms of you know similarly large aneurysms but narrower necks that could be coilable. Uh, but you know it was the Pox trial that that took off because it was very easy to recruit patients in that trial. Uh, because, in fact, in the neurointerventional community, the understanding was there um, and the dissatisfaction with the available treatments for, for these aneurysms. And so there was a, a number of, of physicians from a wide range of, of practices. You know, uh, we were in, in Manhattan at the time, and we were getting patients from Atlanta, from, you know, Kentucky, from, from, all, from all of the, from seven or eight different states. Uh, sent to us by, by you know, very well-known physicians in, in the field, uh, precisely because you know they had the understanding that you know what we can offer to these patients is is relatively limited, and it may require multiple treatments or they may require a bypass before a carotid sacrifice. So there was really no resistance in in that sense. The resistance really. I personally met uh, the resistance and and, and um, strong questioning in the in the first um, period after the trial when the, the the device was approved and the trial came out and you went to meetings and there was a lot of criticism about about oh why did you have to so many use so many devices you were kind of um, you were over-treating aneurysms, and, you know, you designed the trial to be successful, and, you know, why did Dr. Nelson have to go to every case and, you know, be there for every case and, and, and whatnot? So I think that the criticism was mainly focused on on the our judgment of using as many devices as we did. And we can talk about that in a bit. I think there's maybe another question about that. But, but, um, but, um, and the other was was that you know essentially by Dr. Nelson uh, going uh, to each case or 80% of the cases and being a supervising uh, person there who who would proctor the the operators um, doing the procedure. And that kind of um, that kind of ensure that the trial is going to be successful. On our uh, on our side, though, uh, I think you know if you think about it, the trial is about a device, and the question is, can the device, can this technology, be successful in treating these aneurysms? And so you have to remove as many variables as possible. And one of the variables is you know operator experience and whatnot. So. I think I felt always justified in having, you know, Dr. Nelson go and just make sure that, you know, with his already vast experience, he was there at hand to advise uh, operators, excellent operators, 
but may not have done too many pipeline cases just to make sure that, you know, he can troubleshoot the, 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 the common problems that can occur and that he had experienced. Uh, in terms of the use of the devices, you know, that's, that was completely a judgment uh, call. And one of the things that went into that was that at the time we only had up to 20 millimeter long devices. Now we have up to 35 millimeters. And so frequently, if you had a 12 millimeter mech aneurysm, you have to build a construct this to proximal. By the time you reached with the overlaps, reach the proximal neck, you have used four devices, and now you have a patchwork of, you know, alternating one or three layer coverage. So then you have to put extra uh, stent in the middle to reinforce the construct and to kind of provide a more uniform um, coverage throughout the neck of the aneurysm. So that was, that was one, of the, one, of the, one of the reasons why uh, we use so many devices. And, fi and finally, just, to, answer, just to, to say one more thing about that, is that, you know, if you, if you think about a, a neurosurgical clipping, uh, how crazy is for you as a neurosurgeon to decide, okay, I'm going to go in, open the skull, dissect the aneurysm, but I'm only going to use one clip, no matter what. You know, so I think that that thinking that has kind of, uh, that has um, come into play um, in the initial phases after the past trial was published where, where everybody had to treat every aneurysm with just one device, I think that's, that's faulty on the, uh, 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 on the analogy of, of the clipping that I said that, you know, not every aneurysm can be treated with one clip, and I think Similarly, not every aneurysm can be treated with one device. And so the question is, which ones require one and which ones require multiple? That's a very difficult question. That's a very difficult question. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Bexie. This is Jonathan Pace. Um, you hi. Just a, hi. Um, you just alluded to um, the um, amount of devices used and mm -hmm. um, how and how it can be difficult to choose um, the amount of devices to use for a particular aneurysm. Um, now, given that we had just recently discussed that patient with nine devices placed um, and that led to not stopping the plavix going forward, um, was there any subgroup analysis performed regarding the obliteration rates um, correlating with the number of pipelines used initially um, or other complications that might have been encountered, um, or would you have any other factors that stood out in the analysis that might interest the listeners, even if it wasn't necessarily statistically significant? Right. So we did look at because the FDA when they looked at this trial and uh, submitted the information, they uh, required all kinds of uh, secondary analyses. Um, uh, Hundreds of secondary analyses, and one of them was <clears throat> was complications uh, with regard to the use of multiple devices. So it was broken down into three groups: one or two devices, second group was three or four devices, and the third group was five or more devices. And that, you know, understood that the, the number of of cases where you know there were five or more devices was relatively low, and so there was no statistically significant 
difference in the in the complication rates. And similarly, in the obliteration rates um, either. Um, but um, let, me, let me just think. <clears throat> yeah. What was the second half of your question? I'm sorry, I, I forgot. Hello? Are you guys there? I'm yeah, here. I'm here. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, so I think that answers the first part of your question. I forgot what was the second part of the question, if there's any other um, so, uh, finding that, that could be of interest to the, uh, to the listeners. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so, so <clears throat> another thing that we there was some post-talk analysis about other things like, for example, one of the questions that came up, and actually the Mayo uh, uh, people uh, looked at that uh, in terms of how the history of smoking uh, affects aneurysm um, healing as the uh, as a pipeline treatment, because the thinking was that maybe maybe smoking may inhibit the epithelium or, or you know um, interfere with them. Utilization of, uh, of the devices, but there was no uh, difference found in that. Um, again, the, I think the, the, the very important thing to to emphasize again was that was that there were no as ruptures, and that is very very important uh, to emphasize because. Especially in the first period after the, uh, the, the, the trial was published and, and the and device was approved, uh, there was a lot of fear about uh, these very, very large aneurysms over 15 millimeters uh, rupturing in a delayed fashion. Because there have been a <clears throat> couple, of, couple of cases, uh, and these cases get highly publicized, and it kind of, kind of, um, uh, Scare the practitioners, um, and, and so our, uh, pro, our our study had forty some um, intradural large and giant aneurysms and <clears throat> treated with a pipeline device alone, and none of them none of them ruptured. And I remember during the trial, uh, you know, these patients would be calling me. Uh, a week, two weeks, three weeks after the, the treatment, saying, oh, God, I'm having terrible headaches. And I kept reassuring them that that's a good sign because that means the aneurysm is still in the clot and, and so the healing is going on and all that. And so we managed them with whatever pain medications and steroids as needed. And, and really, in fact, none of them, <clears throat> none of them had, <clears throat> had a hemorrhagic um, event. Now, granted, there are the very rare cases where you have an aneurysm that is, and typically these are very large or giant aneurysms with very wide necks, where you treat it with one device. And I think what happens is the aneurysm gets stunned uh, because the change of the flow acutely thrombosis, uh, but not completely. And so over time, I think some communication between the, between the, the flowing blood in the vessel and the aneurysm 
and sack remains. And so, to be, kind of like a like um like um Nordic aneurysm, you know, the thing keeps growing, even though even though angiographically when you do an them, you may think the thing is occluded. You know, have been a couple of a few cases, and again, I have to say, I've only seen one of those. And it was not in my own practice, but I proctored a, a case somewhere where 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 that happened, where we treated an aneurysm with one single device. And again, my feeling was that we needed to put more, not because I have any evidence to support that, but but um, it's just you know my own experience, and. I remember at six months it looked completely occluded angiographically, and then four months later the patient presented with, you know, increasing headaches and oculomotor palsy, and it turns out that the aneurysm had grown, and we had to go back and put an extra two or three devices, uh, which, by the way, takes me back to Dr. Thomas's question, which I forgot to answer, which is, if an aneurysm doesn't close after after treatment, uh, the first treatment, what do you do with it? And and it depends on on why aneurysm didn't close in the first place, because some of them could be those factors as we discussed. But we actually, Max Shapiro, um, our, our partner at NYU, actually had a paper out on on our pipeline experience looking at failed aneurysms where we treated them with pipeline and the aneurysms failed to close down. And so one of the one of the features that that predict a failure to close down is, is if you have an ophthalmic artery and, and a paraophthalmic aneurysm. The aneurysm doesn't even need to necessarily give rise to the ophthalmic artery, but it's just in the immediate neighborhood. What ends up happening is because of the acute curve of the vessel, the device doesn't completely uh, you know, lay down on the vessel wall, and it creates virtual spaces around, and that kind of um, creates a runoff into the ophthalmic artery, and um, and so that that's that's one of the known causes why why an aneurysm would not would not shut down when there's a runoff from the aneurysm or in the na immediate neighborhood of the aneurysm, and frequently, you know that you know we we normally would treat those with uh, with extra devices, but but. Um, Sometimes you don't have the luxury of being able to do that because if, let's say, it's a, it's a colloidal artery, a colloidal artery, you can just cover it up with an additional two, three devices. So that I, I agree that that can be an issue. Well, thank you uh, very much. I want to thank Dr. Pesky, Dr. Morov, Dr. Bass, and uh, uh, Dr. Thomas that they took their time to discuss this paper. I think it was a very interesting discussion, very good questions. Uh, thank you very much to the listeners. This has concluded our Congress of Neurological Journal Club podcast.